Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, not here as usual with Miguel Walker. He's on a well-earned road trip and uh, hope he's driving safely. Be safe out there, Miguel. I am here today with Brian Pontalillo and Aaron Fagan. Brian Pontalillo is the editorial director at both Fine Home Building and Green Building Advisor. And Aaron Fagan is a freelance editor at Fine Home Building. And uh, a while back, he just did an interview with me that I thought was tremendous. I finally had the nerve to read it recently. Um, okay, well, so we'll start with you, Brian. Please tell us a little bit more about yourself, and I might ask you some questions along the way. So welcome. Yeah, sure. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, it's nice to be on. This is this is maybe the first time I've been on another podcast besides Fine Home Building's podcast. So it, it's fun to, uh, that, in a way, I feel like the pressure's off because uh, yeah. you're the host, Christoph. Uh, so um, I've been at uh, I've been at Fine Home Building and Green Building Advisor for the better part of 20 years. Ooh. I land yeah it's been a it's been a it's been a ride. I landed there because I had a combination of skills that were right for an editorial position there, a background in uh, some work in the trades, and, I, and unlike many of your listeners and our readers, I, I never worked in the trades to the degree that I had mastered any any particular skill, but I did work as a carpenter's helper. Um, as, a, as a laborer, I did work in landscape construction um, as a painter. So I worked around the trades quite a bit from my teens through my late 20s. And I also, in that time, after graduating high school, very slowly completed a degree in professional writing with, and I was focused on journalism. So I thought I would, I would work at newspapers. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very much an, an armchair journalist and, and a journalist. And what we do at Fine Home Building is certainly, it is certainly a type of journalism and a unique type of journalism. So I, I ended up taking a, uh, at some point I ended up taking a paid internship at, um, at Fine Home Building and um, was there for about three months. And uh, I, think, I think after the internship ended, uh, they didn't have a position open at the time. I was hoping for a position, but they didn't have one open at the time. And so I left, completed the internship and left. And then a few months later, they, they had a position open and they called me and offered it to me. So I came back as a full-time employee. And that's it. Like I said, I've left a couple of times because, uh, you know, the, the changing nature of the positions that I was in and, and just sort of looking for um, a little bit of variety in my life. But I've Fine Home Building's been a great place to work, and both times I was lured back with intriguing, mm-hmm. intriguing positions. In fact, I was lured back with positions that were more interesting than the one I had when I left. Great, great. So I'm sure we'll get into that a little more. Aaron, how about you? How did you find your way to being freelance editor and interviews editor at Fine Home Building? I interviewed for a position as a copy and production editor at the magazine in 2013 uh, with Brian. And so my background had primarily been in copy and production editing. Went to school for creative writing and literature, 
got my introduction to publishing, working for Poetry Magazine in Chicago. Hmm. I was a, a copy and production editor and research editor for Scientific American in New York City for a while. I also worked for Nature for a time as a freelance sub-editor. So kind of an eclectic editorial background, but also on an on again, off again over the years, uh, I've worked as a machinist, uh, worked as a carpenter. So I had some pretty solid chops in terms of, you know, understanding the, the at least the basic principles of home building and the right and the wrong way to do things. Um, so you bring all those skills under one roof, so to speak. And it was uh, ex- exciting to be at the magazine full-time. And then around 2016, I moved on to some other opportunities. And then with the onset of the pandemic um, and the 40th anniversary of the magazine, uh, Brian tapped me on the shoulder to see if I would be interested in kind of doing a reboot or revitalization of an interview department that I used to do for the magazine called Tailgate. Mm-hmm. but in this more fully realized uh, sort of feature length, you know, a bigger sandbox to play in. And I've tried to bring my own sensibility to the department. I guess I try to d- draw outside the lines a little bit more than someone else might. And I feel like that's um, been exciting to see where the conversations go. Yeah. I remember when you interviewed me, they, it, it was tremendous. It's kind of sprawled out of what I expected to talk about. And yet sometimes it's better to have the conversations you don't expect to have. They can be fresh and alive. So before we get into this, you guys, uh, and I, here's an interesting thing as your host uh, listeners, I forgot to tell you the topic today. Today we were talking about the role of the media, the role of journalism, on our building science industry, on the way that society thinks about and delivers conditioned space to itself. So fairly big topic, probably one you haven't heard before. I certainly haven't read anything about this. And so I have these two brave souls willing to step into the uncharted territory together with me. And I wanna start with some more charted territory perhaps. If you could help me with just some terms, I've just mentioned media, journalism, and you guys are both editors. First of all, with media and journalism, is there some differentiation there or how would you think about those? I guess t- just to me, media is a uh, plural. And I, I think of that in terms of like the delivery system and journalism is the, is the actual art and practice of okay sort of existing in those spaces. So one is structural and the other is, you know, that's the DNA, and then journalism is the proteins that inhabit the structure of DNA. I see. I see. Attempt. Okay, so when you're tra- Brian, you mentioned you you trained as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you that means you were writing, or is, can, you, can you have a spoken journalism? Sure, I think you can, and, and um, I think just to. It maybe maybe say what Aaron just said a little bit differently about journalism and media is you know media is bigger than journalism and journalism um, is 
journalism is brought to us on some form of media, right? Whether that's paper or a video or this podcast or, you know, another, uh, another type of media. So all, all journalism is delivered through some type of media, but, but we talk about, and so I think sometimes we're using the words interchangeably and maybe I did that, but, you know, like a, a TV show is a form of media, right? I got, you know, um, friends is a, is a TV show. That's a form got of media. It. That's, that's not journalism. Got it. Got it. Okay. You know, you reminded me of, um, you know, the power of speech, the power of communication, I should say, written or oral is so around us, right? They say like in the beginning was the word, right? Mm -hmm. In the Bible. And then even the, we call ourselves a person, we would say I'm a person that comes from personare, sounding through the mask, the original, uh, I think it was Greek plays, they would wear a mask and sound through. So from a very basic level, people recognize the power of the word, the speech, written or, or spoken, I think. So I wonder, this isn't what we plan to talk about, but do you, either of you have any comments about how you were attracted to becoming journalists or editors? Is there something there that you can put a finger on? Well, I, I tend to have this... Um this proclivity or i don't know if that's or or maybe maybe it's a quirk i'm not sure but i tend to the the things that the, the roads that i tend to go down in my life sometimes feel um sometimes they feel sort of random at the beginning and then i become very interested in them and this has happened both um in my in my interest in studying professional writing and journalism, you know, I kind of went down that road at first because it was just sort of where my skills led me. My skills in school tended to be towards research and writing, not um, math and technical things. And so it sort of, that led me down that road. But once I got into a professional writing program and got into journalism classes, I was, I became more and more enamored with it the more I studied it. And the same thing has happened at Fine Home Building. You know, like Aaron mentioned, I, I showed up at the magazine having done, worked in the trades enough to, you know, know the parts and pieces of a house. If I was, if I was talking to a, a builder and they mentioned studs, I knew what they were talking about. You know, if an architect mm -hmm. mentioned the overhang, I knew what they were speaking of, but certainly no, you know, no expert on the subject matter. But as I, the longer I've been there, the more interesting it's become to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you've both had a career that's um, been in and out of the, the, the fine home building and green building advisor uh, with you, Brian. Actually, let's put a pin in that. I can come back to that. So is there a connection between Fine Home Building and Green Building Advisor ex besides the fact that you support both of them as an editor? Uh, there's a, it's the same company and and we, sh we share some content and obviously there's, obviously there's an overlap of what the content is. In, in a way, um, Green Building Advisor is a, is sort of a smaller slice of what we, you know, the, the content that we publish in green on green building advisor, a smaller slice of what we publish in fine home building. And there's some sort of stuff on the, you know, maybe the, the more bleeding edge of what we consider green building or policy type of, of things that we would get into on GBA that we wouldn't get into in, in fine home building, knowing that what that audience is, is interested in. Um, so, we we do have we have a very in a way we work we work together but we also green building advisors also operates in a way very independently from from fine home building okay okay and so you guys are part of the subset of you know journalism within the building industry and uh that's there's got to be some special overlap there between your personality 
and writing because it's it's very tangible and it's around you all the time. You're always in and out of someone's home, in and out of your own home, and therefore you're constantly engaged in your profession in some sense, thinking about it. When it comes to the role of journalism in the building industry, there's this other little quirk. It's like the how-to industry. You're not just writing about buildings, but you're writing about how to make a good building, how to make a fine home. Uh, have, have you like special stories or special experiences working in the how-to industry? That's a hardball question. No, it, it's good. Uh, I mean, that's the Taunton Press, it's history. Uh, Paul Roman, who started Fine Woodworking mm -hmm. Magazine first, um, and then branched out into these other categories, fine gardening, uh, fine cooking, and so on. I mean, their their whole mission has been devoted to how-to journalism. Uh, they were pioneers. Uh, Paul Roman, for example, uh, loved Scientific American, where I used to work, and mm. their whole approach, the architecture of how they uh, put a print product together to deliver and convey highly technical information. Uh, he used that as a model when he first started the layouts for fine woodworking. He wanted to take those same principles and apply it to woodworking because all the other publications in the marketplace were just eye candy, you know, for, for the, for the actual practitioner, uh, it was just me meaningless. There wasn't anything that could be anything really meaningful or useful that could be gleaned from it. It was just uh, a, a vehicle for advertisements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the niche that, of fine woodworking, fine home building, and by extension, the other publications have filled. Uh, fine home building is it's 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 prime its prime directive has always been to deliver uh, cutting edge t techniques, but also you know really valuing craftsmanship and. And, and then as it's evolved over time too, to take, you know, building science is taken up a bigger portion of the pie. Um, but there's, you know, lots of different categories f um, for the, the, the magazine, the different content categories that it tries to fulfill um, what's going on with tools, what's going on with materials, like really uh, feet on the ground, you know, get your hands dirty information but uh, also assemblies, uh, really sensible assemblies from seasoned practitioners that have found really efficient ways to, you know, attach a deck to a house in a safe and weather resistant way. And, you know, the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you gave me two, two jumping off points. One is this concept of craftsmanship. And the other one is the whole thing about how do you fund these endeavors? So starting with craftsmanship, um, it's it's a bit of a philosophical riddle for me because um, on one hand, I completely relate to the sense of heart and caring and, and tradition and, um, you know, deep attention to quality, you know, even how do you sharpen a bit 
right? Those, there's, it can go down and down and down. Uh, and I was thinking about uh, as a metal shop, I used to do a lot of uh, metal shop work myself. How do you how do you sharpen the bit for the end mill or something like that? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot. There's like a lot of craft. I mean, it, you can feel it's like a, it's an art. It's truly an art form. And how do you produce these materials? And yet there is a pragmatism that says, look, we need a lot of quality delivered quickly to our society. We need better places for people to live generally. And so there's this tension between craftsmanship, which is somewhat focused on tradition and therefore somewhat implicitly backward facing, right? You can be rowing your boat with great exertion and discipline and integrity, but still facing backwards. Um, so any thoughts about that, that, like the role of tradition in the fine home building how-to world? Well, I, I guess I'd say that it it's a very, first first of all, it's a very important part of of the industry that we we all work in right um at fine home building you know you as an engineer um we all we all sort of are part of um an industry that prides itself on craftsmanship and, and i don't think that you'd whether whether it's it's we could argue over what craftsmanship is and what quality yeah. craftsmanship in a home is but i don't think there's many there's too many builders or people in the trades that would not uh, claim to be a craftsman you know that it, whatever their whatever their work is and whatever the outcome of their work is, I think that that probably most people would say that that that's an important aspect of their work and in what they do. And I think that it's a it can be it can tend to be a loaded term as well when you get into conversations with people in different trades, and it can be loaded just meaning that they have different definitions of what craftsmanship is and different sort of bars for uh, levels of quality that they consider craftsmanship, good craftsmanship versus, versus poor craftsmanship. And then even, even beyond that, I think we can dissect a house and, you know, if maybe if you talk to homeowners or people who um, lay people when it comes to the building trades, you know, craftsmanship likely is um, likely is only only within the things that are visible and mm -hmm. maybe to the maybe to people who are listening to this podcast um craftsmanship is you know much uh sort of i guess literally deeper than that you know um and it's about sort of the the, the whole the whole house is a system idea and how important you know every bit of of home building is from what happens on the drawing board to what happens on the, you know, engineer's computer screen um, to what's, you know, what's happening within each assembly and within e how the mechanical systems are playing together. And that's sort of the expanded role of craftsmanship, the expanded view of craftsmanship that we take it at fine home building and, and green building advisor. I like it. I think we also have a privileged perspective from the point of view that there isn't uh, a fixed agenda. There isn't like a romantic attachment to what craftsmanship is uh, that, you know, there's two ways of looking at language. There's people who look at a, a dictionary definition that that's the monumental fixed, like that's this word in its meaning and it's consistent throughout time. But the reality is dictionaries are a relatively recent invention by human standards. And every dictionary is different and has a different philosophy of language that it brings to it. 
and it's really a chronicle of evolving use over time. And I think mm-hmm. fine, fine home building falls into that latter category in terms of its relationship to language and craftsmanship and these ideas that it's an ongoing conversation. It's not something that is arrested in uh, fixed in time uh, in any rigid sense. Interesting. Interesting. See, um, I mean, I really, I have a flavor of this. When someone says craftsmanship and fine home building to me, I go back to fine woodworking and I go back to harvesting an oak tree and drawing it to my job site, you know, by horse and planing it down. I mean, that's sort of where I go into, you know, intellectually. And I love that you're talking about it. It's a chronicle of evolving use over time. You know, it's an ongoing conversation. I think that's so important to remember to bring that forward. But then there's, you know, major media outlets. Like we got to interview Chris Ermides with This Old House. They didn't name it This Awesome House. They named it This Old House, right? And generally speaking, there is this sense of, oh, like, like I live in a 1919 bungalow and it was a shack made out of scrap wood in South Austin when they closed the lumber yard in Louisiana, brought all the wood here and built, you know, construction laborer housing. But now it's like imbued with this, oh, look at this you know, longleaf pine and it's beautiful, but we imbue certain older things as additionally valuable. And then we imbue other older things, like frankly, older people, we just kind of hide them away in, in old folks homes. We don't want to see. Yeah. Them. Um, well, Christoph, you, you know, you mentioned something that, that I, I think about often and that's, you know, there is a romanticism um, in, in sort of within craftsmanship and, and, and this like, you know, would I love to have the time to do sort of, you know, to do some woodworking projects with all hand tools and, you know, and that kind of thing? Sure. And I think the reason I'd love to have the time and the, and the place and the money to be able to do that is because at this day and age, it would sort of be this like luxury to do that. Right. You know? Exactly. But, but, but a craft, uh, you know, go back a couple hundred years and find the person who had to do that and ask, see if he wants to use my you know, my cordless drill driver. And I, I, bet, I bet he gives up his chisel pretty quickly. <laughs> so, Aaron's raising his hand here. <laughs> you know, so I think it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's, there, it, there is sort of, there is, there's, there's movement that's undeniable. And, uh, and I think craftsmanship is, and the, you know, Hey, all the, if someone has the ability and time to do things in ways that, um, and to do things in ways that sort of harken back to to tradition and and they have they you know they have customers and clients who are willing to pay for it and and they and they they yield a very high quality result great um it's not it's not reality for for many of today's you know professionals in the trades mm-hmm. yeah i like that you, you bringing up the heart bringing up romanticism the sense of emotionality we have that still. I mean, technology has changed tremendously, but people still want a hearth. They want a fireplace in their home. Yeah. You could argue from some quantitative science-based rationale that actually that's a terrible idea for several reasons for air quality, sure. for energy use, but it doesn't matter. That's not what it's here for. I mean, you could argue like um, people always want to hear ROI about things. You know, hey, if I hire you for your services, will it ROI out? It's like, well, did you take that into account when you bought your couch or your pillow or something? I mean, there's these things we just want them. Right. Um, well, you know, it, I have through this job, I have been able to visit many um, high performance homes and I have been able to be in them for lengths of time, mostly mostly for photo shoots and video shoots. I've never lived in one. 
I've lived in old, leaky, uncomfortable buildings. And so for me, it, the, you know, the what's really romantic for me is to live in a place where the air is really nice to breathe. Yeah. You know, and, and that that has become a, an aspiration and the, an aspiration having having been able to experience those buildings only occasionally. Um, that's an aspiration that tri- for me now transcends, you know, a beautiful coffered ceiling. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I think there's you know, we, we think about fine home buildings. So that means we're going to have a fine wall or a fine floor roof uh, foundation, something like that. Reality is you don't live in any of those components. You live in the space contained by them. You live adjacent to your walls. And you're right. You live in the air. We we did Aero Barrier here at our office. It's the 1920s, 2,000 square foot, two-story little rectangle. And um, the friend of ours that helps clean on weekends, she said, hey, are you guys pre-cleaning ahead of me? Because I used to dust like crazy, and now I don't need to dust. What's going on? We, and, and that was a big like surprise. Like, oh wow, that's that, that's what it was. actually. We also have a HEPA filter and an ERV, and you know we got our ACH fifty down from fourteen to three, so we made some changes. But yeah, I, I think that covers the craftsmanship. Unless you have final comments about this um, romanticism and hearkening back, Aaron. Yeah, I I guess like to to me that there it's a it's all on a continuum it's it's not that uh there's something that's in in the past i mean like fine home building that like what what that definition would have looked like to a prior definite a prior generation you know in in 1983 or 84 Mm. when the first issue came out and the kinds of things you would have found in the magazine then as opposed to what happens when you pick up the next issue uh what fine home building looks like to two different generations of readers uh is going to be very very different and that i think is what keeps everything fresh and exciting in, in, in including conversations like this where we're kind of having a little think fest on ways in which journalism can you know keep up with the conversation because the conversation around the conversation is changing uh, culturally and fine home building is no different than the, the, the culture in which it lives. Mm-hmm. So um, all the, all those, all those ideas are, are continuing to change and be reshaped and redefined. And that's, that's okay. I think that's where the passion and the excitement comes from, not protecting old ideas. That, mm-hmm. that, that serves no one. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, so you, please go ahead. Uh, I, I just, I, I feel like, I feel it's important to mention because maybe I came off strong, strongly about, um, about sort of aesthetics versus, you know, health in, in a home. And, you know, it's, it's not to say that there is any problem with that coffered ceiling that I mentioned. And in fact, those beautiful details are maybe as important to our heart as the fresh air is to our lungs. There's no doubt about that. You know, it, it was meant to be an example of the totality of, of craftsmanship um, in, in its relationship, as Aaron was saying, in its relationship to to what we do in, in uh, you know, at Fine Home Building and, and in building media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that attention, you mentioned visible things and what you, I think really what we feel as mammals is we're highly, we're highly relational. 
And if you can tell that someone put a lot of caring into what they've done, like your stair balusters or your hardwood floor, how that was laid out, there's a there's a felt sense of satisfaction there. There's a felt sense of someone. And, and yet contrast that to most of the trades that I worked with on the projects I went through. They wanted to get in, get out, get done, mm -hmm. get paid, get on to the next job, right? Like people that do sheetrock all day, every day, I they have tremendous skill at tape and float. I mean, it's a, definitely a skill. I doubt that they, that it's, you know, like a, a Zen chop wood, carry water moment for them when they're doing it. It's just like, I just got to pay my bills. But I want to take it back to where Aaron, Aaron mentioned about the, the, there's, it's kind of a give and take within the broader culture or more like a, what societal interests are influ is influenced by culture. I mean, aggregated interests become culture and aggregated behavior becomes culture. But now you have the market, right? We have to pay for this stuff, right? And you guys now have to juggle, like, what are my readers interested in versus what are my advertisers, you know, hoping to promote? And then you're responsible for curating content, right? So, you know, hopefully you're not getting completely led around by the nose by the interests of the public. You're supposed to be adding value. Um, boy, oh boy, I'm telling what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, <laughs> any thoughts that are, it's like a little triad there. Like there's your sense of what's good to talk about. There's what might be interesting to the advertisers and what people might be wanting to buy and read. That's a balancing act, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it would be if that were the case. I mean, oh. the, 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 I guess, you know, I mean, I, I, I can speak to what it is that I'm doing with the interviews and it's about delivering an unconventional, unexpected perspective, talking with people who are highly regarded in the industry in all their different corners of the sandbox, whether I'm speaking with a, a, a carpenter or a, a building scientist or a home builder or you know, Mike Litchfield, who's the founding editor of the magazine, um, mm -hmm. trying to really bore into um, what can be gleaned from these people. To, you know, it, there's a human interest aspect to it, but it's meant to bring a cultural perspective about the home building industry. It can't just be building assemblies and tools and materials all day there's there's a human story behind what it is that we're doing that needs to be told and it's just as much a part of what we're doing as everything else but no one's telling me what to do um and i think that that's i think that's critical and essential to the work to be given that space to follow the thread of truth wherever it leads you that's to me is what journalism is. If it's being put through some kind of you know economic atom smasher to have the <laughs> the greatest ROI or whatever, um, I fall asleep very quickly, and I don't really want to participate in that. I love it. I I don't know though. I feel like there's um, a lot of aspiration in in feeling that as long as you follow this, the thread of truth in your writing that the advertisers will continue to fund you and the public will continue to read it. I, I mean, I, I 
I really appreciate it. And I think many people do. Maybe I'm being too pessimistic. It is also the case that Brian, editor in chief, or what was your title? Editorial director asked you, requested you do these interviews and probably gave you the artistic license to take them wherever they led. Um, but Brian now is asserting his role. You know, that he has role power in some sense about saying, look, let, I will tell you what I think appropriate content is. And then it could be that it turns out the public doesn't read it. It's no one likes it. And no one's going to put ads in magazines that have, you know, where the f thread of truth was followed to do interviews. <laughs> it is, it is a, um, you know, and I, I am, well, I'm the right person to, to talk about this be, or one of the right people, not, not the only one, but one of the right people to talk about this because in my role, I'm often in the hot seat where um, I am the liaison between our editorial department and our ad sales department and our consumer marketing team. And I'm sort of the liaison and, and, and I do consider, um, I do consider, you know, part of my response. Well, I consider my responsibility to be, you know, um, sort of, I guess, threefold considering that, you know, on the, yeah. on the editorial team, my, um, role is to, is to sort of help the staff to develop the content that is right for the audience. That's it. You know, Aaron's working on an interview. Patrick's working on a tool review. Matt Milham's working on a, you know, building assembly. And those are all that content needs to be the right content for our audience. And there, there's no doubt about that. Um, when I work with uh, the consumer marketing team, you know, my role is, is, is how do we, you know, how do we use that content as skillfully as possible? Because we are a business and we need people to actually find that content and, and, right. and ultimately pay for that content to keep us in business. And then when I'm working with the ad sales team, my, my job is how do I come up with ways that we can work with their marketing partners? That's the term that they use, their marketing partners to, to work together in ways that I can feel you know, I can sleep at night um, and, you know, knowing that we are we are drawing a line where we have some journalistic and editorial ethics. That's not always easy. And I get pushed every day to cross that line. Um, and, you know, and in some cases, mm. I know that I know that some of the things that we do, you know, optically to our audience might look like we're crossing that line. Um, and and I, I feel I feel good about saying that we're not. And, you know, not that we haven't done some things where I kind of went, ah, well, you know, maybe, maybe I wish we hadn't done that one. But um, most of the time, like when you see something that we've partnered with a, with an advertiser on, which, which we use the term sponsored content. So, you know, if you see sponsored by on, on one of our videos um, and it's an editorial video, basically we've allowed the sponsor in, we've, we've agreed to work with them, but, but there is no agreement that the content will be that we will we, that we will say what they're asking that what they're asking us to say, or that right. the content will be anything but what our editors would be happy putting out. Um, and we get we we certainly get to a point with with some of our advertisers where where they want they want a scripted video, you know, they want a scripted video about their product, and we make it for them. But we don't brand it fine home building. You you won't see fine home building branding on that. We make it for them because we have the the. Um, content creation skills and the in the building industry expertise to help them with that video. But then we just give it to them and say, you do this, however, you know, you can do it with this, whatever you would like. So that's one of the ways that we we help keep our business 
alive, but we make sure that anything that, that has Fine Home Building's name on it or Green Building Advisor's name on it, um, you know, it has, has full integrity. Um, and, and, you know, I think so, you know, and here's a, here's a little, I don't know if this is a, a tip or not, but most of the, you yeah, know, yeah. if we're, if we're, if you see sponsored content from us, mostly it's because those are pretty good companies to work with. They're real. They are, most of them are understanding of our need to have that editorial integrity. And that's why we get to that agreement where we can do some content with them. Beautiful. I'd be, yeah. And you, you're also being transparent about it. It sounds like, you know, this is sponsored content. Um, in some sense, it's, it's somewhat all sponsored content because sure the, the lights stay on. But now in, you mentioned a video. So on the internet and in the print, is it clearly, is it also clearly defined what's sponsored content? Like, what do you, do you refer, have another term for what's not sponsored content? Like in, in, sponsored? in print, we don't do any sponsored content. Oh, um, so yeah, so the, the, the closest thing that we've done to that is, um, is to publish some, um, to publish some, we, and we actually stopped doing this, but, uh, to publish some articles on our, on our FHB houses that are sponsored projects. And we were putting sort of a segment on, on those projects in the magazine. Um, but we've, we've actually stopped doing that. So now, so in, in print, there's nothing that is sponsored. Um, we, we do what, what is standard in print where we do tell, we, we put together an editorial calendar and we tell advertisers what we're going to be publishing because, you know, if we're publishing an article on, on painting, a paint advertiser might want to be in that issue. So we tell them that, but we don't even let them do, um, at, in fine home building, we don't even let advertisers in, in ways that most and many magazines do. We don't even give them adjacency. They can't have their ad next to our painting article. Um, so we don't, we don't promise any placement in the magazine. In fact, you'll notice that our, our features have no ads in them. When you, when you get to the first feature in the magazine to the end of the last feature, you won't see an ad. So in that, that goes all the way back to Aaron mentioned, uh, Paul Roman and Paul had some really tough guidelines for advertising. In fact, there's a, there's a legendary story about Paul getting the first ad for the very first back cover of the very first issue of fine woodworking magazine. And he thought the ad was, was really ugly. And he said, I'm not putting this on the back cover. We're not selling the back cover. We're putting editorial on the back cover. And for like the next 30 years at Taunton, you, we didn't sell the most expensive real estate in print. Wow. You know, the most valuable real estate in print. We had to sell it eventually when, when, when the print industry got tough. But Paul was really, and one of the things he said was, we will not have ads in our, in our feature well either. And we've, we've been able to maintain that so far. Okay, let's not go too far down this, but what's making the print industry tougher? Let's not go too far down that, but like- well, there, it's, you... it's, it's simple, it's the, it's the lack of, I mean, people just aren't in print anymore. Advertisers aren't in print and fewer, and fewer readers are in print. Okay, and, and they, well, even, please. I was just gonna say the industry has stabilized quite a bit. It, it, it sort of was on a, a, you know, in a free fall for many yeah. years, yeah. And, but it has, um, it has stabilized quite a bit. So there's another term we, you know, we mentioned editors and journalism and media, but now we have influencers, right? So there's this, there's this other whole category, you know, and like, so getting eyeballs on ads is the, is the euphemism. And yet that is actually the game, you know, it, you know, as um, if you think about intent, right? You think about what is the intent when it's to influence versus to educate, it's different. 
but we can really use our knowledge based society to put eyeballs on ads. We know what'll do it. And yet does that lead to the outcomes we want? Is that harmonious with this idea of craftsmanship, this idea of, uh, you know, ongoing conversation and kind of chronicling the state of the art. I wonder. So influencers, any thoughts about influencers? I sprawled that out pretty nicely. I, I guess the first thing that pops to mind for me uh, is that the easiest way to distill it is between a, a, a quantitative ethic and a qualitative ethic. And mm. our culture is more or less been driven by and obsessed with a quantitative ethic in multiple metrics for less, lack of a better term. So, you know, a view is a view is a view on a video, it doesn't matter. There's no one there that's qualitatively measuring whether you actually enjoyed that video or learned mm-hmm. anything from it, or uh, there's not a lot in the way of like quality assurance or quality control. Uh, anybody with a smartphone can be a content creator with all the platforms that are available, which is both symbolic of and i say symbolic you know it uh it sends a signal of liberty and democracy but if you go under the hood of the internet and how it is actually structured and organized it's anything but that so if you have advertisers or if you are an influencer with sponsors these are all things that are tagged and marked to prioritize that content over something that actually is useful, something that uh, is integrous. Uh, Those qualitative terms uh, are sort of falling by the wayside. There's, There's no guarantee that something that there's more of or has more views is by default, high quality. Um, it's it's often the, it's often the antithesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and like all things, you know, the the larger scale you go, uh, the more it drifts into the realm of generalization. So if you're talking about highly technical content with specialized vocabulary, and you know, you're you some part of you has to accept that you're going to have a smaller audience. You're talking to fewer people, but by extension, those fewer people that understand what you're even talking about are probably people who can shape the culture in a meaningful way that will start to um, have broader impact as it naturally wicks into the world at large. But... Mm -hmm. Hope I didn't yeah. mix too many metaphors there. <laughs> <laughs> Just the right amount. I, I think that the world at large, I mean, we're recording this a couple of days after the Lieutenant Governor of Texas decided not to let a historian speak on the history of the Alamo. Like there's several historians mm-hmm. who did actual work and you know, the, the fight at the Alamo was bec- primarily, well, I don't want to get political, but the story was that uh, Mexico had outlawed owning, owning people. They had outlawed slavery, and there were some mercenaries that wanted to 
fight against that. And that was the backstory of the Alamo, which wasn't the story that we've been sold, wasn't the propagandized version. And yet it, it's kind of widely known that that's, that's the true history. And yet like literally recently, you know, government, governing officials, adult human beings say, no, we're not going to tell that story. We're, you know, our, our cultural myths are more important than, than the truth. So we're in a very, this qualitative versus quantitative ethics. Um, in fact, I think it's important to recognize there's a slight separation between ethics and morals, right? Ethics is, it's like rules that guide individual behavior. So it's somewhat of an individual thing, whereas morals, like, um, it's like societal norms of right and wrong. And I think that actually gets back to craftsmanship. I mean, this integrity, this honesty, this hard day's work, you know, that went into some of the older homes that we think about it that way. Does that bring up anything, Brian? Well, the, um, I, I think that, you know, Aaron said something to me recently in a, in a conversation we, we were having. He said that um, he talked, he mentioned, you know, the idea of disruptors and in so many industries in, in the, in the, the sort of world of modern tech, so many industries have been disrupted, right? Like the taxi cab industry and the hotel industry and the airline industry. And, you know, and we've sort of fetishized a little bit uh, disruptors. And I've seen, I've seen job ads where we're a company that's, that's disrupting this industry as if this is a good thing. And, and sure, maybe uh, there have been examples of where the disruptions have been helpful and needed. Um, But, there are certainly it's certainly not always the case and i think on, on the one of the unfortunate things is that that there has been a disruption in in the journalistic world and the fact that the fact that anyone can broadcast themselves now and this isn't to this isn't to put down every influencer because i know lots of them and i know that lots of them are coming from a really um honest place full of integrity, wanting to share what they've learned from others. And, you know, and I, I see a lot, especially in our industry, I see a lot of res- respectful interaction um, in, in the in the influencer world. Um, but they're also, they're not trained journalists and they don't have the, necessarily have the kind of um, ethics to uphold that a journalist does. And maybe just sometimes even just a lack of understanding, you know, so really, I just, I'm hoping that we come to a point where, where, where influencers, anyone really, you, Christoph, people who choose to broadcast themselves, choose to share, you know, realize the responsibility that comes with this. You know, in our industry, we're talking about houses. We're talking about something very important to people's, um, to people for so many reasons, right? From their finances to their health you know, to their happiness often, you know, so that not only like, you know, the economics of, of, of affording the house and what that's going to do to their financial life, but, um, you know, the, the happiness, the joy that they get to see from the visible craftsmanship in their home to their actual physical health from the air that they're breathing in that home and their comfort. And it, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, we have a, in this industry, we have a, a great responsibility and um, we'll get stuff wrong. I mean, that's, you know, in, in, in traditional, uh, traditional journalism, you know, that's why newspapers, public correct, 
publish corrections, almost every issue. That's why I find home building has a letters column, you know, and I was trained by my uh, first boss, you know, with the letters column, you know, we don't publish, if you read our letters column, we don't publish many letters that are praising us for what we do or, or thanking us or, you know, tapping us on the back. We publish the ones that are actually saying, you know what, in the last issue, so-and-so got this a little bit wrong. You know, and it becomes it, it's the community there and mentioned before. And it, one of the other things that I would add to the, the community element is that it's self-policing and we want to be part of allowing that to happen. You know, yeah. So so that the I think that, you know, this this the disruption in 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 traditional media and traditional journalism, um, I'm dubious that it's that this is an industry where it's it's doing good, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe some. But, you know, yeah. maybe 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 in other cases, it's, you know, just like anything we we we've we've we chatted about this before the before the show. But, um, you know, there's so much information available right these days, you know, so much information that we're going to be able to confirm whatever we want to confirm. So, right. you know, so yes. when, it comes to build, when it comes to building science, I, I think maybe let's uh, you know, let's be willing to let's be willing to be challenged on our assumptions about how how something works or might work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in fact, getting back to that, I, I really like that you brought up that fundamental asymmetry between a journalist and an influencer, right? The journalist is hopefully fact checking, whereas the influencer, I was thinking about when Aaron interviewed me, um, I made a lot of statements like about BlackRock, you know, making sure about climate risk. I would hope Aaron that you, before you release the interview, you did some looking around and make and fact checked my statements. Yeah, um, I, I did, and I fleshed it out more uh, to cite the exact letter that the CEO mm-hmm. had released to shareholders and got the exact quote correct. I mean, it was a great idea that you're introducing, but I wanted it to be, you know, it it strengthens what you were talking about by being more accurate, right? Um, Whereas if you were just an influencer, you could have just recorded me and it might have been right or wrong, but it was out there. And I mean, my father for many decades now has been giving me book, how-to books on building. And there are some rather well-known public celebrities. I'm not obviously going to name them now with TV shows and many books. And I would just read them I'm like, this person doesn't know what a WRB is, right? Like they really don't know what it is or they don't understand radiant barrier. They don't understand what that is. And, um, you know, I'm just laughing at it like but it's kind of sad, right? That the, here it is. It went out there. It's some experts saying it. Well, it's dangerous. Dangerous. You know, yeah. it's dangerous, really. Um, you know, because those can be they, those can be costs costly mistakes. They can put people at risk. You know, um, when when really? when bad when we have bad information. You know, and, and what you, Christoph, what you mentioned in the fact checking that you know that Aaron did on your interview, like that's that's precisely what that's the essence of how to journalism, because often we're publishing, you know, first person stories from builders who have, you know, uh, maybe learned from a generation before, maybe learned a little bit in school or, or through uh, their own continuing education. And then they're, and then they're sharing how they put that into practice, you know, um, in their, in their, in their building. So maybe it could be builders, architects, um, engineers, you know, but they're writing this first person narrative from their experience. So us as the editors, our job is to make sure, you know, that, um, that there's no, you know, that we do that fact checking, you know, there's a, there's a number of ways to build a 16 inch on center stud wall, you know? And, um, so we don't need to, 
we don't we we can let you know we can let Aaron publish his preferred method, but we need to fact check that that method is 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 safe, that it's meeting the codes, the end the end result of that wall is okay. Right, right. Yeah, yeah the, the Miami high rise is poignantly on our minds, thinking about <laughs> the important role of maintenance and proper construction. Okay, so yeah, I, I like that. So you need to be making sure you're you're speaking truthfully and you're you're. Um, not weaponizing the truth, right? And I wonder about it, you know, there's a Hippocratic oath. It seems like there should be a journalistic oath. And yet we live in a time where um, adult human beings lie under oath and they get found out, right? So if our oaths, I mean, it's just the endless kind of spiral of questions about what is, like, seriously, what is reality today? What is true today? It's That's not an easy um, question for people growing up in our society to say, oh, this is true, this is untrue, for sure. Well, um, yeah. Discernment is, uh, is, is, a learned, is a learned skill. Discernment is an essential tool for survival. Um, the philosopher Alvin Toffler, who had written the book Future Shock, uh, it might have even been in Future Shock, where he said, you know, Literacy in the 21st century, not the 20th century, literacy in the 21st century won't be about reading, writing, and arithmetic. It will be in our capacity to learn and unlearn and learn again. Mm. That's what literacy will mean in the 21st century. And it doesn't seem so far that people are up to speed looking at things through that lens. Right, right now, it's like trying to take a sip from a fire hose wherever yeah. you look and there's no tools for discernment to make meaningful sense of what we're being bombarded with. So you're learning, 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 and learning, but you're not unlearning and learning again, uh, rewriting the disc to make new, more informed, uh, paring things down. It's just more and more and more of more in every arena. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're reminding me of something my, in my own direct experience. There's, there's a growing and, and very fundamental dissonance between the fire hose and my ability to receive it. Right. Dilbert has that like a fire hose aimed at a teacup. Right. And, and it, that brings me to like another topic, which is future media models. Right. And before we dig into that, I mean, in the sense that if, if we're starting to enter a space where journalism and the role of an editor might be misaligned with hu human organisms' ability to receive information, this is occurring, um, and maybe we're not there, but it's occurring at a time where we need to unlearn myriad traditional practices to confront the climate crisis right now. Like it has never been more important for, for you guys to save us. <laughs> Mm. Any thoughts on that? Please save us, Brian. Go for it. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know what the um, I don't know what the business model is for sure, but I do Ooh, yeah. I do hope that I do hope that there's a return to um, interest in um, in journalist really journalistic media. You know, um, if you turn on any twenty four hour cable news. You know, which is which is where most I would I would assume I don't know this for for sure, but I would assume that that's where most people um, get their quote unquote news. You know, mm -hmm. you're 
I, I heart, I, I liken it to um, professional wrestling, right? The, <laughs> when I was, a, when I was a kid, it was the WWF. It was World Wrestling it. Federation, right? And now they had, they had to change it to WWE. They had to change it to World Wrestling Entertainment or something like that. They had to put hmm. the word entertainment in there. And I think that those, those 24 hour news channels, they're like, let them, they can, they can do their thing, but they should, it should, it should be known that they are entertainment, not news outlets. Right. 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 Um, because that's, that's what they're doing. Um, and, on, on and that's what they say channels. whenever they're caught lying. They're saying, "Hey, look, it's just entertainment." Absolutely. I, I heard uh, recently one um, one popular twenty four hour host who was um, who was brought to uh, a, a lawsuit was brought against for um, for slander. Um, he his defense was, "No one should take what I say as fact. No one in their reasonable mind would take what I say as fact." So, and, and, and I, and I believe, and I believe, I believe he won the case. So that's, that's oh sort of where we're at. So I, I do hope there can be a return to, you know, if people can sort of come around, come full circle and come around to legitimate journalism and legitimate sources for whatever information it is they're looking for, whether it's world news or whether it's, uh, you know, home building information um, that they can come around and sort of start to um, appreciate and, and, and help support whatever it is. You know, we publish on, on social media a lot. We publish, um, links to articles obviously that's what we that's what social media is for us it's a way to market our content and so often you know someone comes to the site and they run into the paywall especially on gba because gba most stuff you have to pay for on gba and then they'll, on the social media page they'll they'll be upset that they have to pay for the content well you know the if you good content someone has to pay for and the the best person to pay for it is the person that wants the content you know, because that's the most pure relationship. Yep. That's you know? Beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's been said, I'm trying to remember who said it, but the most uh, destructive three words associated with information flowing on the internet are, are free with ads, right? right? So it's really about the ads. There's no free. It's about the ads and the advertisers. And as soon as you say free with ads, if that's the intent, well, now I can harvest the data on, you know, eyeball tracking and who you were, and I can get research other databases to figure out what your favorite color is and which magazines you read and websites and TV shows. And, and that's another, yet another layer is the, uh, we are a distracted society overwhelmed with um, opportunities for distraction and discursive thought writ large. Um, boy, I think I'm... Been a long week. I'm hearing my own sort of <laughs> tone here, oh. and it's it's partly because we, you know, and like you guys, I, I care. I really want to see good outcomes, and and um, when I see threats to good outcomes, you know, like let's have a planet we can live on, and our kids and grandkids will have resources. I mean, I mean, resources like clean air and clean water, which are truly under threat. Um, heck yeah! I guess I get scared. Yeah, I, th I think that that's fair. And I also think that like some of it is by design that there's there's this th elevated volume in everything that's going on. It's I mean, it, it, you know, Wall Street is primarily hiring physicists. And Silicon Valley is primarily hiring psychologists. So, I mean, 
there's this world of upside down that's taking place. I mean, if you, the exotic algorithms that trading platforms are using are using, you know, like some of the best minds in physics to come up with stranger and more exotic ways to sort of parcel debt into smaller and smaller pieces of information. So is to basically like bury the bodies of debt in the global economy. Um, so I guess the, this comes back to, you know, there's what we think is going on and then there's what's actually going on. And the gulf between those two realities is ever widening and what we think is the case is uh, not nearly as strange as what's actually going on. Um, I think it was in 2005, yeah. Harvard had done a study about uh, in the distribution of wealth or the, the income disparity in the U.S. economy. And there, there are several different graphs. One was um, what people think is the distribution of wealth in the country right now. And it um, showed sort of, you know, the poor people were poor and the rich were quite rich and it was unequal. Then they asked them to plot on a graph what they thought um what they thought it should be, you know, so there's what they think it is, what they think it should be, and then there's what it actually is. And when you looked at, um, so it's a good control to ask them, what, what do you think it should be? You know, it's not everybody's right. rich. It's still, a, it's a gentle curve. Like the, the, there are still poor people and there are rich people and they do well for themselves. So it's still recognizably something that's American, but then when you look at the graph of like what is actually the case, it's it's like this flat line and then it shoots straight up for the rich and it goes off the charts. The, the you know, the, the, it's almost incomprehensible. People don't really even understand how to visualize or comprehend how unfair the system is. It's delusional to think that anything that is going on right now has your interests at heart. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I... Now you've, I've yeah. got you down in the in the dark age mindset. Well, you know, the... <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't see it, I don't see it as being dark age. I, I see it as like, like being harmonized with reality, like the, the, that it's not... Mm -hmm, nothing to get emotional about but if i think that if i'm going to turn on the television and get something that's meaningful that is actually shaping the course of my life in a meaningful way as opposed to something that is trying to provoke me trying to program me with some certain ideology in one direction or the other into sort of disarm my capacity to make meaningful sense of the world and people as I've always known them in my own backyard. You know, I'm, 
you know, full disclosure, I'm part of a recovery community. When I go to church basements or community centers and break bread with people from Yale to jail and from park bench to park Avenue, you know, we're generic human beings trying to find a way to live and not harm ourselves or other people. Like it, it pierces through all distortion when you hear people trying to not hurt themselves and be a better father or a better daughter or a better son, you know, that's, uh, it cuts through all pretense like acid. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. In, in fact, um, going back to the, the traditional or the craftsman and the American, like the American principles, I think would be, we're a country of immigrants. We, we, that's how we started. And there was this, there was this sincere concern, at least purportedly sincere in the interests of the common man. Right. And, and in integrity and in truth. And yet, um, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. Everyone can hear where I'm going to take that. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, let me let me let me jump in there because that that relates to I, I just just um, I wrote. Oh, you're right. You're going to save us with the climate crisis. No, go ahead. Jump no, in. But I did write you, common man, and I did I did write a, a, an ed a, a letter from the editor in our last issue of Fine Home Building, and I was just sort of jotting down some thoughts that related to. Um, the costs of homes right now and the costs of uh, building oh, materials yeah, yeah. and um, and sort of how, and I was asking, I was really asking our audience to kind of share how it's affecting their work lives, how it's affecting, you know, what are they, are they adapting? Are they, you know, are they just finding that, you know, they have builders seem to be busy right now. So are they just finding that people are willing to, willing to pay? Um, so sort of what, what's going on? What are you seeing out there on the ground? But when I was writing that letter, one of the things that, struck me and it's it's something that has always struck me about about fine home building is that um and is that the the projects that we publish um we and we need to publish certain projects because we need them to be they need to be the right examples of of how to build and uh, but the pro, but but the examples that we find tend to be expensive houses for wealthy people and that's always bugged me and you know and i and i do and, I, and so I wrote in that letter that I think it, you know, that I think if if we have a failing at fine home building, that's it. That we haven't, you know, that maybe we haven't, you know, explicitly, you know, um, helped with affordable housing. You know, more affordable housing for more people. Because, um, and I think that's, and I think that that's that is that's the challenge and that's the heart of like, you know, we can, we can build a thousand high performance homes this year. We can build 10,000 high perform. We can build 50,000 high performance homes this year and we're not making a large impact. Yeah. And so, you know, I hope that what, what we do, I hope that what you do, Christoph, I hope that the information, whether we have to build these homes right now for people who have money, I hope that the information you know, disseminates. I hope that there is, you know, to use an economic term, I hope that there is a trickle down effect from these expensive homes to, you know, to everyday homes. And that, you know, and that when when you're working on a home that's going to be exceptional in its performance and its indoor air quality and its craftsmanship, all of that, that that is because you are sharing information and because maybe we're publishing that house in our magazine, then maybe that's helping to improve, you know, the, the, 
you know, the multifamily, the multifamily affordable housing, or, you know, the raising the bar a little bit in the industry, maybe influencing some codes, whatever it takes to kind of prop up the bottom a little bit. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, Aaron? well, I mean, there's several different things that come to mind immediately, but, you know, love him or hate him, you know, Joe Seabrick is a very interesting figure from the perspective that he's the one who sat through endless, boring meetings, okay. trying trying to get code changed, even to move the, the, the dial just a little bit, even for these like large uh, national home builders to get them to build to a slightly different standard using conventional materials, getting them to bar build just a little bit smarter of a home. Um, those I don't think are minor accomplishments, especially when you look at the achievements where getting code changed is concerned. Because even though there's like a new book with new standards, most countries around, or most, uh, most jurisdictions or however it's uh, bro broken down are, are still following, you know, the 2012 standards or, you know, right. or, or older, you know, it's, it's not the most current uh, code standards that people are building to. So the more changes, the more boring meetings people can sit through to get code changed for the future, that will be the way that will set the bar or at least uh change the the calibration on uh, you know what we what we weigh at least as a bare minimum by will be shaped and changed that's how you change the conversation in a meaningful way that's where the rubber will hit the road mm -hmm. is with these very boring unsexy things that um, people have the patience to slog through to uh, affect actual change. There was another thought, something related to what Brian was sharing. Uh, housing, low-income housing. Oh, yeah. So thank you. Line. Thank you for the reminder. Um, there was an article that I had written for the magazine when I was there about the about the tiny house movement. And... Yeah. You know, that was, you know, talk about Instagram and influencers. I mean, that was something that was just on fire at the, at the moment. But I tried to take more of like a sociological perspective, like take a deep breath and step back from it. You know, why is this something that's catching on fire? It was something that was in direct response to the, the, the Great Recession. And you, you start to bore into it a little bit and you see that, most jurisdictions are their square footage minimums that a house has to be. These were things that were, you know, there's a, there's a case in New Jersey where um, they determined, you know, they, they brought in psychologists and other health professionals to say that for, for mental health reasons, a house can't be smaller than 1,000 square feet, which oh was goodness. all just it was it was baloney it was a way of yeah. redlining and creating an economic control under under uh, you know mm -hmm. under the it was like a trojan horse you know like like sneaking in mm -hmm. this kind of um you know prioritizing a certain uh oh, i'm 
better at writing than yeah, economic, at economic disenfranchisement. Yes. Yeah. So, but so yeah. a lot of these laws are still in place throughout the country, so that you know you can, you couldn't build a tiny house if you wanted to. That's why most of them are on trailers, is to get around those minimums. And if it's on a trailer, then you can follow camping laws, but you can't stay in one spot for longer than a month and so on. But the, the point of my article was to uh, take a look at certain principles that could be gleaned from it. And one of them is that even in the wake of the recession, the, the, the average square footage of homes shot back up over 2,500 square feet. Hmm. And mo most of these houses are inhabited by a couple. I mean, no one in their right mind needs that much room. I mean, and if you, again, if you want to talk about you know, something that's qualitative and quantifiable, when you look at the space that you actually occupy, how you actually use your home as opposed to how you think you use your home or how much space you need or how much space you occupy, those numbers are very, very different. It's what we actually live in and how we actually live is much less space than what we think we need. Yeah. Um, and so that was just meant to tie again together this idea of um, what we think something is as opposed to what is actually the case. A, just another um, manifestation of that same human mechanism. And, and, and what goes into that is a lot of human ego too. What we think, you know, it's a keeping up with the Joneses or if you're taking a Freudian perspective, you know, uh, it's some elaborate mating ritual that, you know, I need a bigger house to attract a different kind of mate and I'm signaling social things all the time. And this is the new vocabulary. You know, I, I, I've got a, you know, I've got a high performance home, wink, wink, you know, it's a, a way of signaling to the culture yeah. that, you know, that, that you, you know, you're highly sought after specimen. And you're safe, right? There's, there's also a sense of, I, I can evidence this power to my society, which is like a protection strategy and I'm safe. And yeah, so I think we need to kind of circle the wagons here and get, bring it back to the role of journalism. Mm -hmm. And I was really struck when you talked about information flow, uh, it's a very poignant topic for me because even though we're an engineering company, we spend a lot of our time doing education, implicitly educating project teams, advocating for you know forward-looking practices like things like heat pump water heaters, um, negotiating for space in these giant homes. It's amazing how little space they want to leave for the actual engine of the home. It's like put the engine in the glove compartment. And by the way, I don't think round tires are pretty. I want square tires, you know, something like that. It's just, but when we, when we get our designs out there, we also go through some challenges with the installation because the installing contractors haven't seen ERVs. They, they aren't used to accommodating, um, you know, dedicated dehumidifiers or HEPA filtration, or they haven't seen plenums design like this, or even made out of metal in, in my market um, a lot of times. So there is an implicit education and we would hope that 
we're at a spot now where electrification of heating needs to occur and transportation needs to occur fairly rapidly. And so the HVAC contractor is on the front lines of a societal transition where when they come to you and they say, hey, Brian, I quick, I need a new air, uh, heating system for my home. You say, well, well, let's not put a furnace back in. Let's mm -hmm. put a new circuit from the breaker and get you a heat pump. Um, so it's a it's a that's that's an interesting phenomenon right i i was doing some research on a article on on water heaters and uh i think it was actually it might have been on heat pump water heaters i don't remember the exact stat but it was something like it was something like 86 percent of water heater, heater purchases are emergency purchases you know so yeah. they're purchasing it when they're when their water heater springs a leak and so they can only get they can only go down to the road down the road to the you know the closest place and choose the water they don't have time to do any research they don't have time to come to you know findhomebuilding.com or green building advisor and do any research they just have to go go get the you know they didn't want to do it before they knew the water heater was getting old but they didn't want to spend the money before and now they want to spend the least amount, amount of money that they can um and do it quickly so i mean it's a, it's sort of a change that there's a lot of changes that need to happen in our in our industry um including you know including education of of trade professionals so that you don't have to explain what an arv is to your your mechanical contractor um but also to to consumers you know and, and to sort of wrap up the last two things what aaron was talking about and what you're talking about into into you know a, a comment i guess won't it won't it be nice when you know the 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 quality of that holistic look at craftsmanship is reflected in the market value of a house. Yes. Cause right now it's not at all. Right. It's like a movie set. I think that's actually a good place to try to end it here. When we will, we will know that we have been successful when quality goes past the walls and yeah, you could argue that we need, we simply need performance-based codes, right? We simply need, to measure your energy, it would give you a provisional code certification. And then one year later, you have to prove that you've stayed within a certain budget. Um, yeah. So any final thoughts, you guys, this has been a delight. Um, building science and the role of journalism, please, Aaron, Brian. Just grateful for the opportunity to uh, talks about, you know, the intersection of all these different ideas. It's something that I'm passionate about and you know you clearly are as well so i hope that you know some of the things that we've talked about have been you know at a minimum you know provocative in some way and you know challenge people to continue to explore and think about things a little bit differently today than they did yesterday yeah right. and i i i just end by saying that uh, you know certainly as as a editor at a at a you know, at a magazine and, and of the of these two websites, I have the I have you know the responsibility of um, providing the best and most accurate information as I can. But I hope that we all you know in this day and age where we're all sharing information. I mean, people who are even beyond influence, just 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 regular people who use social media are sharing information every day. You know, they may not be influencers, and I, I just hope that we can all sort of you know assume some responsibility for you know for that information that we're sharing. Um, and for really being being open minded um, to the fact to to the idea that's you know we that maybe not all information is the right information to be sharing mm -hmm. all, all the time. Mm, I like it. I, I agree with you that we need to be uh, sharing 
helpful, accurate information to the extent that we can, to the extent that we can, and that we know that we are. Yeah. Uh, always thinking about that. So I want to thank you both and thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.